0: Hello and welcome to the Full Circle Healthcare podcast brought to you by MedSphere Systems Corporation. I'm your host, Michelle Dong-Mooney, and today we are talking about practicing safe EHR use. And we have a great guest to have that conversation today. Nikki Anderson is the Compliance Director for MedSphere and she is joining us now to break this all down for us. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's start off at a high level here. Uh, What are the safer guidelines? Where do they come from? What are they really designed to do?
1: Okay, so the SAFER Guides, really SAFER is an acronym. So let's break that up. It stands for Safety Assurance Factors for EHR Resilience. Um, They're actually a series of checklists and recommended practices uh, to help organizations, healthcare organizations, conduct self-assessments around the safe use of their EHRs. Um, They were actually developed and released by ONC back in 2014 um, and then they were updated again in 2016. However, most recently, uh, CMS has made it a requirement, uh, a self attestation requirement under the protect patient health information objective.
0: So why is there some concern regarding safety with EHR use?
1: Um, i I believe it really comes down to one, one word, and that 's change and the rate of change um, when when you combine these industries, so you 've got healthcare and you 've got technology, and you combine that into the healthcare information technology space, and then you couple that with the ever changing regulatory landscape. All of these changes are happening so quickly that without implementing or, or going through these self assessments. You can see the likelihood of patient safety risk or safety risk in and of itself, um, the chances of those happening increase. And so adopting things or going through these safety checklists um, or the guides that the safer guides are designed to do, um, that helps us mitigate those risks um, or at least try to take a proactive approach as opposed to reactive
0: Let's dive a little deeper. Are there particular aspects of clinical care and EHR function that these guidelines focus on?
1: Let me go back to talking about kind of what they are. um, And I think that helps explain um, the aspects. So there's basically nine guides that are defined under these, um, nine checklists, so to speak, under this umbrella. And they're broken down into three main categories. The first category is your foundational guides. Um, These are going to be things like your high priority practices or your organizational responsibilities. And an example of this would be, you know, do you have policies and procedures in place that would cover um, downtime, you know, if your EHR was unaccessible? Um, So that's your first First set of guides. Then it's broken down in the second set of guides is your infrastructure guides, and these are checklists around contingency planning, system configuration, um, or your system interfaces. So it's going to look to see, you know, do you have um, a plan in place to when you configure um, when you configure your system? Sorry. can you define roles or permission levels to individual users or on a, on a role-based model to where you can actually separate out um, permissions that are given to your front desk users and permissions that are given to your clinical users because they don't have to have all the exact same access levels. So you want to confirm in your EHR that it's giving you the ability to define configuration settings according to the work that each of your users are going to be asked to do. And then finally, the last grouping um, is what they call the clinical process guides. And these are uh, covering areas like your patient identification, uh, your computerized provider order entry with decision support, Um, your test results reporting and follow-up in your clinician communication. So, examples of these would be, you know, does your EHR flag abnormal lab results in a distinct way, whether it's bolded or maybe it's in red font, uh, maybe it's circled. Um, Another example would be, um, does the EHR give you the ability to accurately identify a patient. And it may be in the EHR itself. It may be like when you print out a wristband um, or a label to be attached to something. Is there enough information on those labels and the wristband to correctly identify the patient? Um, So all in all, I think they really focus on those areas where possible patient risk could be introduced.
0: So let's talk about that Are there any specific things about EHRs that pose a risk to both providers and patients? And then also, do we see some of those risks also with paper charts?
1: So I do think there are risks. And I think the idea of having the software tries to help mitigate those risks or reduce the amount of risk. So when you you look at an example like documenting patients' medications or documenting patients' allergies there's mechanisms in place by software vendors that will perform drug-to-drug and drug-to-allergy interaction checking. However, if a user um, doesn't document a full list of medications or maybe the patient forgets to tell the user that they are allergic to a given medication, then the interaction checking that gets kicked off behind the scenes isn't going to be fully accurate. So when you compare that to the paper world, the same risks still apply. You know, if you don't have a full set of um, medications or a full list of allergies written down in that paper chart, it's hard to perform a complete and accurate um, uh, drug to drug or drug to allergy interaction check. However, I think in the paper world there's more risk because if you think about, you know, maybe I couldn't read somebody's handwriting, or then I'm relying on my memory uh, to, re- to to know, oh, is there is there a possible interaction between these two drugs, or between this drug and the allergy? So you can see where, you know, the adoption of you know EMRs can can help reduce the amount of risk, but still there are still risks that are introduced just from
0: human error. So. Are the guidelines in some cases actually requirements that otherwise wouldn't be pursued?
1: Uh, I think there are some instances where that may come into play. Like if you look at the example we talked about earlier um, <clears throat> with the abnormal lab results, you know, does the, does the EHR uh, flag it in a distinct way, you know, bold, red, or circled? Um, I think before, if you're not looking at these checklists and you're not trying to be proactive and in, in looking at where potential patient safety risk may be exposed, sometimes I think users just get accommodated or they get accustomed to the way things are in their EHR and they know where to look for abnormal labs, like they know right where to go. And so they they, they just, you know, they wouldn't necessarily call it out. But I think what this does is allow them or what the safer guides allow us to do is really open that line of communication between uh, the organization and the software vendor to address things like that. And maybe they feel like they can, you know, do something about it by working with their vendor.
0: And changes, of course, are such a daily, monthly, yearly happening all the time occurrence. So let's talk about the extent of the guidelines with anticipating the future of EHR development. Uh, What level do you see with that and the influence there?
1: So in reality, it's hard to forecast what it will actually, you know, look like in the end, but I do anticipate at least two options. So you're going to have um, risks that are being identified by organizations, and they're going to communicate those back to the software vendors. And sometimes, and I think for at least in the beginning, um, a lot of these may come back and be resulted as, oh, we do have this uh, functionality within the software, and maybe it was a configuration setting that wasn't turned on, or um, maybe they, it just wasn't being utilized. Maybe there's some training opportunities that become available. But then the second uh, the second scenario will be, you know, maybe the software vendor doesn't um, have this functionality, and. You know, I spoke earlier about opening, uh, opening the door to a tighter relationship between organizations and their software vendor to work together. Um, and I think that's the, the second scenario where they find out that they don't have this functionality and they'll work closely uh, to be able to put in some, you know, somewhere in their development lifecycle to accommodate and, and reduce that risk.
0: Can providers complete these safer guidelines themselves or do they really need to bring a consultant into the picture because there's just so much information and, and so much involved?
1: So for starters, you know, I think obviously if you wanted to if an organization wanted to get a consultant to understand the intent of these guides or these checklists, um, you know, kind of understand, you know, give them some direction on how to um how to attack you know you know is there a you know do I uh, separate it into phases where I prioritize those kinds of things, but what I see and what I understand is for starters, I think the the organization needs to review the checklist and 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 go through and identify okay, what are the types of questions that I'm being asked, and most likely they're going to identify a team um, of people that will come in to, you know, indicate whether, um, in the, in the checklist themselves, there's basically for each item, there's three, um, radio buttons that you can select. And those, those buttons are either fully implemented, partially implemented, or not implemented. So, you may, organizations may identify a team because there's questions specific to IT. Um, so if it's asking about backup procedures or, uh, you know, specific downtime, what do you do in downtime, those kinds of things, you may have to refer to um, an IT staff member. And then when you get to the clinical questions about, for example, you know, the example we used earlier about abnormal lab results, well, if you specifically assign this to an IT staff member, The IT staff members, probably they're not going to know the clinical aspects of your software. So it's really going to be a team. Then as you go through the questions, there may be things that are intertwined with external entities, um, things with your interfaces or things with your software vendor. Um, And so you do want to have that communication with them to make sure that those uh, policies are embedded into your own. So, for example, when we talked about, you know, if your EHR is inaccessible, you, you show up to work and your EHR is inaccessible, you may want to re- reach out to your EHR vendor to determine what their service level agreements are so you can incorporate that information into your own policies and procedures, because you do have a dependency, you have a relationship in that respect. So especially if you're, you know, if it's a, if they're hosting the environment for you, then you know, some of that depends on on their policies and procedures. So as, as organizations start to go through these guides, they will identify you know, there's there's a lot of things in there that they'll be able to answer upon themselves. Um, and then there's things that they're going to have to reach out to their partners. Um, it could be, you know, maybe they have a an interface with a specific diagnostic lab company. Um, they may have questions that they have to reach out for them to as
0: well. With that said, and a lot of information that needs to kind of be processed there, do you think EHR developers are feeling more of a responsibility to try to lessen The administrative burden on providers, and do you think they're making strides to achieve that
1: goal? Personally, I think we've software vendors have always tried to, you know, reduce that burden um, and make and make their jobs easier. Um, At the same time, they're also encountering challenges uh, when trying to prioritize all of these development efforts. So earlier, we talked about how rapidly the changes in these industries happen. And and then you mix that with the regulatory landscape. And sometimes I feel that software developers um, focus on what the providers must have in order to comply with all of the regulations. And when you start to look at the prioritization of that, then the things that the providers would like to have fall to the bottom. Um, of that priority list. I feel like when you introduce or when organizations start to go through these safer guides and conduct these internal self-assessments, they will identify some things that may pose a potential safety risk, but also end up being something that makes their job easier. Um, And when they communicate that or when they work with their software vendor in order to mitigate those risks, I think it will really open the doors to both the organization and software vendors in achieving a better balance between the wants and the needs.
0: A lot of great insight talking about practicing safe EHR use. And Nikki, if people would like to learn more information about the discussion today, where can they go to find it?
1: Um, as always, they can always go to medsphere.com. There's lots of material on uh, on the website around safer use
0: of EHRs um, or just contact your um, account representative. Perfect. Nikki Anderson, Compliance Director for MedSphere. Nikki, thank you so much for being here today. A lot of important information. You handled it beautifully and uh, I'm sure people are probably going to have those questions and, and want to follow up on it. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you all to viewing and listening to the Full Circle Healthcare podcast brought to you by MedSphere Systems Corporation. I am your host, Michelle D'Amuni. Once again, you can visit MedSphere.com for more information. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you soon.